Well, thanks to Ali and, and the team and leading us in worship. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 7. And as has been said, I want to look with you this morning at the opening 10 verses and the encounter Jesus has with a Roman centurion. The immediate context is that Jesus has recently finished his famous Sermon on the Mount that we all know well. We discover from the passage that after coming down the mountain where he'd been teaching the people, he then heads out to a place called Capernaum. And when you review the Gospels, we discover that our Lord actually spends quite a considerable amount of time in Capernaum. He's already preached there on, on a number of occasions. He has healed large numbers of people. And in fact, in Luke chapter 4, we discover that Peter actually lived there. And so our Lord is in very much familiar territory here. And so let me read to you then from Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. After he'd finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority. With soldiers under me. And I say to one go and he goes. And to another come and he comes. And to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard these things he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said. I tell you not even in Israel. Have I found such faith? And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Let's pause and let's pray. Father, thank you for already all the things we've been able to sing about, to remind ourselves of, and to be thankful for. And Lord, we pray that as we turn to your word now, that you would speak to each of our hearts, and that you would help us to hear what it is that you would have to say to each one of us. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Throughout the Gospels, and particularly in the early days of our Lord's ministry, we read time and time again of how the crowds came and followed him. In Luke chapter 4, we read about how the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. In Luke chapter 5, we read about how great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. And in fact, when you go to the parallel passage in Matthew's Gospel, we read and discover there that he, before he enters Capernaum, we read that when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And it would seem that these crowds even followed him into Capernaum because we read later in the passage of our Lord turning to the crowds and speaking to them about the faith of the centurion that we, we meet in this passage. What must it have been like to have met Jesus even just once? What must it have been like to have heard him teach, to have seen him heal, and even to be one of those whom the Lord touched and made well again? It's significant that our Lord never turned anyone away. Those who came for healing were healed. Those with needs were counseled by their creator. 
how privileged these people were to have met the Lord Jesus personally, to talk with him, and for many to be healed by him. As we come to church Sunday by Sunday, I wonder, do we ever really consider and think about what an awesome privilege we have to be here? As we gather together as God's people, something significant is taking place. We're gathering together to both worship God and to hear from him. What we do in this place week by week is an awesome thing. That we are just as privileged as the people who would meet Jesus on those Galilean shores. That when we come here, we come to meet with him. I wonder how many of those that met the Lord during his ministry became believers. For those that did, how they must have sat back and wondered as they reflected upon that day where they met him for that first time. As they met the Lord Jesus in the flesh, they spoke with him. And then we consider that that same Lord then went to a cross and died in their place. Perhaps the majority of the people in those vast crowds that gathered and came to meet Jesus may not have taken much time to think about who it was they were coming to see. They may simply have come out of curiosity to see what all the fuss was about. Perhaps those with illnesses came because they tried everything else, and so they came to him as a last resort with nothing to lose. But what we discover from our passage today is that our attitude in approaching the Lord Jesus is of great importance. Our attitude and how we approach this place and these moments is absolutely critical. How we view him and how we view ourselves is the difference between life and death. It's the difference between salvation and judgment. And so I invite you to have your Bibles open in front of you as we look on at our passage together and work our way through this this morning. In verse 2, we are introduced to a centurion. At the time, Capernaum was an important military town. And although Galilee didn't become a Roman province until AD 44, the people were still under Roman rule and governed by them. And we discover from history that what the Romans did was to appoint people from within each locality to rule on their behalf under Roman commanders. Therefore, whilst the commander of the occupation army and some of the soldiers would have been from the Romans directly, the majority of these armed forces were actually made up of locals. Anyone then who became part of such an army were hated by the people and seen as traitors because they had now sided with the, with the Romans and were now oppressing the very people that they had once lived beside. As the name suggests, the centurion was typically a soldier in charge of a hundred men. And the centurion that we're introduced to here most likely was a Gentile and as you're probably aware, relations between Jews and Gentiles were strained at the best of times. The Roman centurions were generally despised because of the way the majority of the people, the majority of them treated the people that they governed. They were not known for their kindness, but rather were meant to be feared because of the way that they ruled in such an oppressive and fearsome way. After all, they are there to maintain law and order. And as we'll see in a moment, this is partly why this centurion stands out from the rest. And yet it's interesting to note that a number of occasions were introduced and the Bible refers to centurions and often they speak in very positive terms about them. For example, at the cross, after Jesus had breathed his last, it was the centurion that exclaimed, truly this was the Son of God. 
There was also the centurion that testified to the fact that Jesus was really dead. Now you will notice that the Bible says here that the centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death. And interestingly, the word that Matthew uses in his account that is translated as servant literally means a young child. Luke uses the more common word that is often used to describe a slave. And so with the use of these two words, it perhaps is is there to suggest that the servant who is unwell is in fact a young child that had been born into a family of slaves that were already in the household of the centurion. It would seem that the centurion at some stage had perhaps gone to the markets, had purchased a husband and wife who have then um, had a child of their own, whether that's a boy or a girl, we're not told. And that child is then born into that slave family and therefore by default is under the ownership of the slave owner, which in this occasion, in this case, is the centurion. Now Luke tells us in verse 2 that this servant is sick and is at the point of death. Matthew also tells us in his account that the servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. The text doesn't tell us what caused the servant to be in this condition. Perhaps it was an illness, perhaps it had been through an accident. But whatever the cause, it's undoubtedly a serious situation. This child is paralyzed, in great pain, and by all accounts is going to die. This is a desperate situation. And the reaction of the centurion sets him apart from all the other slave owners of the day. Because it was unusual for someone of his position to show any concern whatsoever towards a slave within his household, regardless of whether it was a child or not. Slaves were seen as commodities and were there to to do simply a task in whatever the slave owner commanded. In fact, under Roman law, the slave owner possessed the right of life and death over the slave. One Roman writer at the time maintains that the only difference between a slave, a beast, and a cart is that a slave could talk. You see, rather than the the slave owner incurring any kind of inconvenience or cost, for medical services or treatment that was given to their, their slave. Under normal circumstances, a slave in this condition would have been left to die. And perhaps even in extreme conditions, would have actually been put to death. The fact then that this centurion shows any concern and care at all indicated a level of compassion not normally associated with a man of this position. Now it becomes clear that this centurion has some clout in Capernaum because the passage tells us that when he hears about Jesus and all that he's been doing and how he's been healing the sick, we read that he sent to him elders of the Jews. And it's likely the reason that he sent the Jewish elders to Jesus was perhaps because he thought it would be unlikely that a religious teacher would listen to a Gentile Roman centurion. And so he probably thought that the Jewish elders would have a better chance of persuading Jesus to come and to heal his servant. And so notice then the way that the Jewish elders approach Jesus and speak to him in a way that suggests that they're actually happy to do this on the centurion's behalf. Because under normal circumstances, the Jewish elders would have had nothing to do with a Roman centurion. And yet here they are willingly and openly going to Jesus on this man's behalf. And this is actually testament to how highly regarded this man was because notice from verse 4 that they come to Jesus and the Bible says that they pleaded with him earnestly. 
We know the centurion had authority, and if he wanted, he could have forced people to do what he wanted. He could have told the the Jewish elders what to say, and they would be obliged to do it. But what comes across from the passage is that the Jewish elders appear to be genuine in their earnest appeal on the centurion's behalf. There's no suggestion that they've come to Jesus under duress and been forced to do this, but rather it seems that they're willing advocates to come and to plead on his behalf. Notice then what the elders say about him in verse 4. We read that when they come to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Here we see what set the Gentile centurion apart from any other. He's a God-fearing Gentile. The elders testified to this man's love for the Jewish people and a love that had been demonstrated by the fact that he was the one who had been responsible for constructing their synagogue. And isn't it interesting that this would be a synagogue that Jesus knew well because he had visited on a number of occasions and preached there. And so in response to this appeal, we read in verse 6 that Jesus goes with him. And keep in mind here that Jesus would undoubtedly have been surrounded by such a large crowd at this time all with varying needs, all trying to press in on him and get some time with him. And yet he is so interested in the condition of this servant that he is willing to leave them and to go with the Jewish elders. It's a wonderful example and a reminder to us of how the Lord Jesus is interested in the individual. Yes, he is the saviour of the world, but never ever forget that he is your saviour personally. And that he's interested in the minute details of your life. That everything you go through, everything you face on a day-to-day basis, he is interested in. There is not a circumstance that you can face. There is not a condition that you could ever go through that our Lord would ever turn his back on you. That he is your saviour personally. And so never ever forget that. Perhaps we can imagine then this as Jesus makes his way to the centurion's home, that this large crowd began to follow as well to see what would happen. And it would seem the news came to the centurion that Jesus is on his way because notice what he does in verse 6. We read that when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. Perhaps there were some that wondered why the centurion didn't go to Jesus on his own. Why didn't he take the time himself? If he was that concerned about his servant, why didn't he actually go himself and go and speak to Jesus? Well, perhaps he wanted to stay behind and actually stay at the bedside of his young servant, of this young child, and offer any comfort and support that he could. As we've already mentioned, we know that most religious teachers would not have had anything to do with a Gentile Roman centurion. And so he thought that perhaps the Jewish elders would have a better chance of persuading Jesus. But in actual fact, here we see the main reason why he wouldn't go to Jesus himself. It was because he didn't feel worthy to go to him. You see, it's significant that that is in stark contrast to how the Jewish elders appealed to Jesus in the first place. The Jewish elders appealed to Jesus on the basis that the centurion did deserve the Lord to come. They say to him, 
He is worthy to have you do this for him. But the centurion himself says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't presume to come to you. And here we see the difference between the faith of the elders and the faith of the centurion. The elders had a faith that was based on works. The centurion had a faith that was based on grace. You see, the Jewish elders had a theology that said that when a person is good and obedient, then God blesses them and anything less is unjust. And essentially, they are arguing that Jesus should come and heal the centurion's servant because this man deserves it. In other words, what is actually happening here is unjust, and Jesus, you need to fix it. A faith that is based on works makes God our debtor. A faith that is based on works means that God owes us. But God never ever owes us anything good. That every goodness and blessing that we enjoy comes to us by grace. We have become so used to the grace of God that we take it for granted. And so when things go wrong in life, often the first question we ask is, how could God let this happen? And yet in truth, when we understand how holy he is and how we have rebelled against him, the question actually ought to be, is why shouldn't it happen? You see, when we consider how we have sinned against God, it is an amazing act of his grace and love that we would enjoy anything good from his hand. That if God gave us what we deserve, he would give us hell. And yet instead, he gives us his son. The most precious thing that he has, he has given to us. The centurion says, despite what others may say, I'm not worthy, Lord, to have you come under my roof. That's why I sent the elders to you. That's why I've sent my friends to you now. Because who am I to come to one such as you? It's reminiscent of the parable Jesus told in Luke 18 about the tax collector and the Pharisee that went to the temple to pray. And you remember the Pharisee strides straight into the temple. He walks right to the front and begins to congratulate himself on how well he's doing, of how devoted he is. And he thanks God that he's nothing like the tax collector. And yet in stark contrast, Jesus describes the tax collector standing right at the back with his face to the floor, too ashamed to lift his head, and in barely an audible voice says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And what astounded the crowds when Jesus told that parable is that he went on to explain that it was the tax collector that went home justified rather than the Pharisee. You see, whilst the centurion was not worthy to approach Jesus or have him come to his home, isn't it wonderful that Jesus still went? If Jesus only dealt with people that deserved it, then there'd be no hope for any of us. And what is so incredible and what we must never forget is that the message of the gospel is for those who know that they're not worthy. When you consider what Jesus has done for you, are you humbled? Are you overwhelmed that such grace and forgiveness has been shown to you? 
Or have we become so used to it that we take it for granted? So used to coming round this table, looking at the bread and the wine, and it no longer moves us at all? Or do we look at these things and we're overwhelmed at his love and his grace to us that Jesus would give his life so that someone like you and like me could be forgiven? In verse 8, the friends of the centurion go on to explain the authority that, G- that this centurion has. And I have to confess that I read this and for a long time and I couldn't understand what is the centurion trying to say here? What point is he trying to make? What has this got to do with anything? What's this got to do with the fact that he's got this kid lying at home, paralyzed in terrible pain, and is about to die? What has his authority and his ability to command people got to do with anything? Well, I think part of the answer is that the centurion recognized that despite having such a position and despite having such authority that he could command virtually anyone in Capernaum and they would be obliged to do what he commanded. When it comes to the condition of his servant who's lying at home paralyzed in terrible pain and about to die, he is absolutely helpless. His authority and his position means absolutely nothing. When it comes to matters of life and death, it doesn't matter what his position was. It doesn't matter how much authority he had. And so he turns to Jesus. And he recognizes that Jesus has such authority that his word means something. In other words, what the centurion is saying here in verse 8 is that whilst his authority is at a much lower level, nonetheless, when he issues an order and he gives a command, it's obeyed. And what he is saying is that, Jesus, you've got such authority. You don't need to come to my house. You don't even need to see my servant. You just need to give the word and it will happen. All it takes is for Jesus to say the word. That's why the centurion was not worthy to come to Jesus. Because the centurion recognized that Jesus has the authority to decide whether I live or die with just a word. This is the same Jesus that told the paralyzed man to rise and walk, and he did. It's the same Jesus that commanded the storm with the words, peace, be still, and in an instant they were. It's the same Jesus that in the very next passage would say to a dead man, arise, and he rose. And it's the same Jesus that would say to the woman of the city over in Luke chapter 7 and verse 48, that your sins are forgiven, and they were. His authority is absolute, and he only needs to say the word. And that's why this book is so important. Because it is the word of God and contained within it are the words of God. And so when you and I struggle to believe, am I really forgiven? When we struggle with looking at our lives and we take a look at ourselves in that mirror and we wonder, how could God really forgive me? We know it's true because his word says it. In Matthew's account, we're told that Jesus said, go let it be done for you 
as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. When Jesus heals you, you get well instantly. There's no recovery period. It's not like getting over the flu that takes a few days to build up your strength again. When Jesus heals you, you're made well instantly. Can you imagine then what must have been going on in this house while all this has been going on? They're aware that Jesus is on his way and that the centurion has sent his friends to him. But as they're gathered around this child's bedside, wondering what's going on, they don't know how the conversation's going. They don't know what's being said between Jesus and the friends. And then all of a sudden, this child who's lying paralyzed, unable to move, in terrible pain, suddenly the eyes open. And the kid jumps bolt upright and jumps out of bed as though nothing was wrong. And everyone round about them is going, wait a minute here, sit down and just take it easy. Are you sure you're okay? And the kid's wondering where the ice cream is because they feel better than ever. As though nothing had been wrong. If the centurion felt unworthy before, imagine how humbled he must have felt now. Knowing full well he was not worthy to have the Lord come to him. Yet in his grace and mercy, the Lord did what he asked and he healed his servant. The centurion must have felt so overwhelmed that Jesus had done what he had asked. Is that our experience? That when we come to the Lord and we pray about something, are we moved and are we humbled when he answers? What we ought to find is that the longer that we're Christians the more humbled and amazed we ought to be by God's amazing grace to us. Because we see more and more the Lord working in ways that we know we don't deserve. As we finish, I want you to notice just one final thing. In verse 9, we read that Jesus marveled at him. Or as the NIV says, he was amazed at him. Jesus said, not even in Israel have I found such faith. It wasn't that Jesus hadn't found faith in Israel. It was that it was just he hadn't found faith quite like this. But imagine having a faith that amazes Jesus. Imagine having a faith that makes our Lord in heaven this morning stand up from his throne and go, wow. Look at what they're doing. Look at what they're, what they're saying about me. Look at how they love me. And turning to his father and to look at it in your life and in mine and to say to his father, that is a faith that amazes me. You and I can have that kind of faith because our faith amazes him when we are truly amazed by him. When you and I are absolutely floored at such grace and love and mercy that has been shown to us, that the love in our hearts just overflows for Jesus, that he is just the most precious thing to us, the most wonderful thing in our lives. Imagine having a faith that amazes our Lord. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this time we've had together. We thank you for what you've been teaching us. We recognize, Father, that this is a story we know well. And yet, Father, we're amazed that it teaches us again of such amazing faith. Faith that trusts you. Faith that believes in you. Faith that will not doubt you. Faith that would say, you don't even have to come to where I am. All you need to do is to say the word. Lord, thank you that your word is true. And help us to take it. Take you at your word. And so when you say to us that we're forgiven, we can believe it. When you say to us that you are with us, we know it. And so, Lord, we ask that you would just bring your word home to our hearts this morning in whatever way we need it. And help us, Father, just to hear your voice and to be changed as a result of having been here. Help us to have a faith that amazes you. And Lord, as we gather around your table, may you once again challenge us about the sacrifice that you have made. May you cause us to be humbled and to be overwhelmed by such amazing love. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.